Welcome to the Unabridged Podcast. I'm Ashley. And this is Jen. Join us for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content to grow your TBR. Sign up for our newsletter to find out more about online book discussions and upcoming events. Find us on Patreon for extra unabridged content. Join us on Instagram and Facebook at Unabridged Pod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the Unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Unabridged. Today is our January book club discussion. We are talking about Celeste Ng's Our Missing Hearts. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are really focusing on Patreon this season and putting a lot of great content there. You can go to patreon.com slash unabridged pod or look at our website to find out more. But we are putting an extra episode every month on Patreon for our Patreon supporters. And that money just helps us to keep things running, to cover our costs and to help us connect with a smaller group of people. We're trying to build up our community over there. So again, if you're interested in supporting us or some extra unabridged content, you can check us out at patreon.com slash unabridged pod. All right. To begin our episode, we're going to do our bookish check-in. Ashley, what are you reading? One of the things I'm reading is Jerry Craft's New Kid. I had seen this one. This is a middle grade graphic novel. I had seen this one a lot of different places, but I hadn't... I don't know. I just, it's just one of those that I wanted to read, but I hadn't really gotten around to it. And so I started it and I loved everything about it immediately. (laughs) So I think this is about Jordan. And he is, I think a lot of it just resonates for me right now. He is a new student at a private school and he is trying to find his way. And so, you know, my kids are new in their schools this year. And certainly my daughter, my oldest daughter is eight. So she is younger than Jordan, but experiencing a lot of the same things. Kids who have known each other a long time. She's trying to find her place. And I just felt like what I love about Jerry Craft's capturing of that experience is that his artwork is phenomenal. And so I think a lot of the pictures just convey so much meaning and emotion. And so I really love that because I think we just really feel Jordan's complicated feelings and the way that he is both kind of lost at his school, but also lost in his home community. So he hasn't moved, he's changed schools. And so there's also that exploration of he had all these friends who are essentially giving him a hard time, because now he is the kid who goes to the private school and who, you know, is no longer in the same way part of their community. And he's trying to navigate that. And then he also is trying to find his way at the new school. And at the new school, some of the kids are exceedingly wealthy. And so one of the kids that he first encounters, who ultimately becomes a good friend for him, it feels very that kid feels very self-conscious because his family is like extremely rich. And so then he's always like, don't judge me. Um, and so, you know, I think that part of what we see is how hard it is for kids, no matter their life circumstances, to navigate being who they are and finding people who they can get along with. And also, Jordan is one of very few students of color at the school. And so, you know, he's both aware he's on financial aid. And there's a lot of stuff about that that's explored in the book that I thought was really great and very thoughtful. And then also, he's just aware of the white privilege that a lot of the other students have. And people do some pretty egregious, there's constant microaggressions happening throughout for him and for other students of color. And And so I thought that that was really well explored also. And again, that's a time where the pictures just convey a lot of meaning about the layers of feelings that come with those things that might seem like very superficial interactions, but have a really profound impact on people. I just thought all of it was lovely. And I think as I'm getting toward the end, I think part of what I'm loving is just that even though there are a lot of heavy things and there aren't easy answers, there's also a lot of hope for him and for him finding his way and for 
the benefits of what is a challenging situation. So I am just all here for it. I'm so glad that I finally got around to it. I will definitely be reading book two. And, you know, I'm excited to see where the series goes. I think, Jen, you said there's a third yeah, coming out it's as well. Out. I can't remember when, but I just saw the note the other day and I was so excited. I loved books one and two and was so happy to share them with my boys and just... Yeah, I think graphic novel fans will love them. But if you haven't tried a graphic novel before, I think they're good for an audience even who hasn't tried graphic novels before. They're a great introduction to the form. Yes, that's, I absolutely agree that it's a nice invitation to mm-hmm. people who might not be big on that that genre. So again, that's Jerry Craft's New Kid. And I highly recommend it. I'm loving it. Jen, what about you? What's something you're reading? So I am reading Chloe Lise's Two Wrongs Make a Right, which is a romance novel that is, I will say, a loose retelling of one love story from Much Ado About Nothing, which is Benedict and Beatrice. If any Shakespeare fans are out there, they are this enemies to lovers pair before that trope had a name, I'm sure. And they are really antagonistic toward each other when they first meet. And for a while afterward, actually. And then eventually, sorry for the spoiler for Much Ado, but, you know, it's been out for a long time. (laughs) Eventually, (laughs) they do end up together. So, Chloe Lee's, I've talked about, I think, before on the podcast. I just love her. I want to read just this first paragraph from her note to the reader at the beginning of the book. And she said, this story features characters with human realities who I believe deserve to be seen more prominently in romance through positive, authentic representation. As a neurodivergent person with frequently invisible chronic conditions, I am passionate about writing feel-good romances, affirming my belief that every one of us is worthy and capable of happily ever after, if that's what our hearts desire. And so she just presents these two characters. B is neurodivergent. And West, who eventually we find out why Benedict is associated with him, but West has extreme social anxiety. And when they first meet, they're at a party, which is just triggering all the wrong things for each of them. And they have a really bad first impression that immediately (laughs) results in them sniping at each other. And then, you know, it's just developing in this really sweet way as they become aware of each other and... There's a fake dating trope, which makes complete sense when you're in the midst of the book. And so, yeah, it just has all of these nice tropes with this great intention behind it. And it's just a great romance as well. Chloe Lee writes all open door romance. And so it's super steamy if that's what you're looking for. And yeah, I'm just really loving the character development. One interesting subplot that is just now coming to the forefront is B is a twin and she lives with her twin who also is in this relationship and B is starting to realize that all is not as it seems with her twins relationship. And so you see the way that she's dealing both with her own sort of upheaval and starting this relationship with West, but also in how she's trying to attend to her sister and be emotionally supportive for her sister and what she's coming to realize may not be quite the ideal relationship that she thought it was at the beginning. So there's all kinds of depth. There's all kinds of steam. It's it's a really great read. That sounds great. I still haven't read any of her books. So I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, her um, Bergman Brothers series is a lot of fun. And that one, oh gosh, I can't remember if that has six or seven books in it. So that's one of those nice ones that, you know, they're loosely connected. So you get to know the characters as the previous couples come into the later novels. It's really fun. This, as far as I know, is a standalone. I guess we'll see if she ends up coming up with a sequel. I can see some of the secondary characters being protagonists in their own novels. But as far as I know, at this point, it's a standalone. Wow. Cool. All right. Well, we are going to switch gears in a major way to talk about our book club book, which I will say the tone is very different from either of our books. So we're talking about Celeste Ng's Our Missing Hearts. I'm going to start with a quick synopsis and then we'll get started. In Celeste Ng's Our Missing Hearts, 12-year-old Bird Gardner lives with his father in a near future United States ruled by PACT, the Preserving American Culture and Traditions Act. PACT has created a country in which dissent is not tolerated, Asian Americans are despised as potential traitors, and children can be taken from their parents for the most negligible of reasons. Bird's mother left years ago after her poetry became a rallying cry for those opposed to PACT. After receiving a mysterious note from his mom, Bird becomes determined to find her. All right, well, we are going to start with our overall impressions. Ashley, what did you think? 
Ooh, I <laughs> I love Celestine, and I thought this book was phenomenal. So I feel like I haven't read a lot of other people's reviews in part because I didn't want to be influenced by what other people thought before I had a chance to read it myself. But I kind of had the impression that some people did not love it as much as some of the other as her other her yeah. others. And I thought it was phenomenal. I felt like it had all the parts of her writing that I have loved in her other books. But I felt like even though the genre was quite different in some ways from what she has explored in her others, that she does it with the poise, grace, and style that I think is so amazing in her other writing. And so even though it's kind of, it's a near future, it's, you know, it's somewhat, uh, I mean, it's dystopian. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I think there are components that where she's having to world build in a way that she did not in her others. But I thought all of that was just amazing. And not only did not detract from the story, but that it was done very effectively and made us feel so present in that world and understanding exactly how they got where they were. I mean, I thought all of it was I just, I would just, I could fangirl all day. I, mean, I just think like, <laughs> I just thought, yeah, so powerful. I always leave her books feeling all of the feels. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this one, I mean, you know, tenfold. I mean, I just, yeah. So I, overall, um, I found it heartbreaking in a lot of ways, but also so impactful. What about you, Jen? What was your overall impression? Yeah, same. I mean, I'm going to say this and it sounds like a negative. It it was a hard book to read because it resonated so much. And I think she both was so clearly working with current reality while creating this near future U.S. that it was hitting hard. I mean, I was working through a lot of feelings as I was reading it, but that's because it is so powerful and it is so beautifully written. And the characters are so real, so authentic, so complex. They are making missteps and not communicating as much as they should, just as much as anyone in the real world does. I I just thought it was so brilliant. And yeah, I, I have seen those negatives that they didn't, people didn't like it quite as much as her previous two novels. And I do think it is speculative fiction, technically, but it didn't really feel, it's not this unreachable, far in the future dystopian. It felt like it could happen in five years. So, I mean, I think it it is a dark book, but all of her books, she is dealing with people who are going through a lot of challenging things and they are having to work through what the best decisions are for each of their circumstances, which is exactly what you see here. I love Bird so much. Oh my goodness. So yeah, I think the characters here are just, the characters here are just phenomenally drawn. The world building felt real, scarily real. So yeah, I I loved it, but I did just want to acknowledge like this is not a book to pick up when you're not ready for it because I think parts of it are very triggering. Yes. I will say that I kept finding myself in this horrendous mood And I realized eventually that it was proportionate to the reading. And so I absolutely agree that as a powerful book is intended to do, it does really impact you. Mm -hmm. And that I, yes, I mean, all that you said, it's triggering. And it is, there were several times that I had to stop in the midst of what was happening and take a break because I, you know, because it's emotionally impactful. Yeah. All right. Well, we are each going to pick, I'm going to say one thing, but I realize that we may pick more than one thing for this one because I feel like I have a a list of, but one thing that worked for each of us. Ashley, what's one thing that worked for you? I think that something that I found so powerful is how we see, first of all, I think that just the, crafting of bird like you said Jen I loved that it was a 12 year old narrator that I think that while it's not a coming of age story like it's very much a book for adults but that narrator who is so smart but also 
as a 12-year-old is limited in his view of the world works so well. And I think that part of that that is one thing, but I like that what I really want to say is that because of the way that Bird is crafted, we see his mother in such an interesting and largely negative light. And then we come to see her fully. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is such so well done. Like that part of thinking, how could she have left him? which we cannot help but think. And then coming to understand how she left him and why. I thought that that unfolding was one of the most powerful parts of the book because I think, unfortunately, that we often assume that we know something about a parent who leaves a child. And I think that this book turns that on its head and shows how there are times that against their own hearts, they must break from a child because it is the best of really bad choices. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like this book makes you think over and over again, like, please let me never be in a situation where I have to make these horrendous decisions about which terrible path to choose in order to stand by what I believe and also protect my child. I mean, I just felt like that was done so well. And it is very painful. Mm -hmm. And yet we see how in this world, which exactly as you said, Jen, is eerily close to our own. She really didn't have, I mean, that was her best choice. And it all was involuntary. I mean, it all was snowballed from this thing that she didn't even intend. I thought that that was all really impactful too. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let you talk a little bit, Jen. What was, (laughs) I could just go (laughs) on and on. I'm like, oh, I'm I'm monologuing here. (laughs) I'm going to pile on on that a little bit just because, or add on a little bit, just because I think, yeah, that, realization a number i'm assuming everyone has read the book who's listening at this point no the this knowing that the decision was both hers and his father's but ethan's too that they made the decision together that what was best for their son was for her to leave i i loved his dad and i loved the way we and bird come to understand him more through the book at first i had nothing but scorn for him and his attempt to make Bird not talk about his mom and forget his mom and just move on and act as if nothing had happened. But then you come to see how that is an act of care that he is trying to keep both of them safe. I thought that whole part when we realized that his parents, that Ethan's parents, who loved Margaret, when Ethan first met her and that they really brought her into the family and that they turn on her so easily and buy into this narrative about her. Yeah. That that just growing complexity that you're talking about that unfolding, I felt like happened in so many directions that we understand that nothing is as simple on the surface as it seems at the beginning to Bird, who is, again, this 12-year-old trying to make sense of this world. Yeah, the way he's looking at everything through those eyes that are increasingly seeing more and more and more. It's just brilliant. It is absolutely, yeah. So I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I couldn't help but think, so this is one, I had a bunch of quotations that I was considering, but one of them was when, Bird turns to Margaret and says, so it doesn't matter, he says, as long as it's happening to somebody else. And that is both so clear in his eyes of what is right and wrong. And also when you're a parent, so complicated because he is saying it doesn't matter for you to keep me safe and to stay safe for me if we're letting this happen in the world. And yet... How is that the right thing to do that you let go of your child? And yeah, oh my gosh, 
There are so many moments in this book that hit hard. That that reminded me of, and this is not officially my pairing, but I just want to shout out Cormac McCarthy's The Road. And it reminded me of the decisions that the father in that post-apocalyptic novel is making for his child and trying to live a moral life in a world where morality has become so corrupted that it means nothing. And that echo... I felt here because there again, you have a son who wants to think that we're the good ones. And that seems very clear cut in some ways, and yet it is not. And so I think that echo, yeah, I just think when you can write that. I thought about that one a lot too, Jen. I I almost put that as my pairing because I think McCarthy's is farther down the pathway of what happens when society falls apart. But those fundamental questions of how does a family carry on are just so resonant here. And I felt like something that Ng left unexplored that I was kind of relieved about was Bird's, in some way it was Bird's decision that it was his comment there. It was his decision that led his mom to ultimately decide to act instead of going with him and his father and being safe. Mm -hmm. And so I think that given how dark a lot of the novel is, we, I felt we left with a sense of hope that those actions do Mm -hmm. potentially make a difference. And that over time, those differences really can bring about change Because like all things, pact only exists because the society is allowing it to exist. And so the bottom line is that if enough people resist and remind the, the passive majority who are just letting it happen that they actually aren't this, that they aren't this, they, they don't hate other people that they recognize the humanity in others, like if we can remind the collective group of people of that, it's enough to knock it down. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of what the story's about too, is just how fear and fear mongering can get people to be complicit in a system that at their at at their core most people disagree with right i think that's part of what's really Mm -hmm. effective in the book is just that reminder and again i mean all of it is is eerie given some of the things in our world but it's just that reminder of how when we don't agree with something it is important Mm -hmm. to take a step no matter how small that step is to help not let these things become who we are. And I think, like you said, with Ethan's parents, I felt like that was just like such a good example of that, that it's frightening how easily we can be swayed and can just forget what we know to be true if we're not constantly critical and questioning what is happening. And so we just see that. I think, and like you said about Bird, I think it's both his youth and his naivete, but also that he was born at a time that he does not remember the crisis. Mm-hmm. And so again, I think we see that. I mean, I I feel sure you felt this too, Jen, but as someone who was very much in my life when 9-11 happened, mm-hmm. I absolutely remember the way that the world shifted and how it felt that it shifted overnight. And suddenly people I thought I knew had these profoundly different feelings and beliefs. And it made me feel like I didn't understand the world that I was suddenly in that I thought I knew. And so I felt like we see a lot of that here that again, she's showing how a small shift Well, it's not even a small shift. When something happens, and I mean, certainly we can say this with the pandemic, when something happens that is a big thing, all of a sudden, things get put in place, and sometimes those things seem harmless. I mean, it just is, you know, it's just that couching of language in order to make every... I mean, I'm sure that all the adults reading felt the remnants of the Patriot Act and Mm -hmm. the terminology used and the ways that those phrases 
and actions and posters and reminders send these messages Mm -hmm. that color the way we as individuals see the world. I mean, those posters talking about loyal Americans and the button, I just thought that seems on the surface as a very simple thing to say, but of course there's this whole structure of assumptions underlying that, that is so insidious. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I thought the author's note where she recounts all the places to explore of Mm -hmm. ways that historically the U S has separated families and is separating families and what that looks like and the reality of it versus the messaging. And I just thought all of that was just so powerful. And again, it, it is up to us. It is up to us. I think I felt so connected to Margaret also when she just wanted to retreat yeah. from, I mean, I, I felt culpable um, and guilty for all the ways that I have done that in really, really in the, you know, For sure, I was already retreating into my own bubbled life with my young children prior to the pandemic. But Mm -hmm. once that came, that was definitely my coping mechanism and has continued, frankly, to be my coping mechanism is to retreat within that interior life that while not perfect is comfortable enough and to and has enough problems to be able to focus on that, but then the damage that that causes. And so, you know, for her, I thought both that contrast between her poems that had their own life and were fueling this fire, and then what we see of her as a young mother yeah. who just is focused on her child and her husband and whose life could not be more interior and more separated from this revolution that was happening, and then all the guilt that she feels for that later on and how that comes to be part of her desire to take action, in a lot of ways was paying homage to this feeling that she didn't act. So, Jen, we have talked about lots of things, but what is one one specific, as a good book should, it brings up a lot Mm -hmm. of things to, to work through, but what's one thing that worked for you? I was really taken with, the role of stories and art through the book and the way that Ng again and again shows how important that is. And it's as simple as the way that bird moves through life with this understanding drawn from fairy tales of, you know, you need to trust some people along the way and what, what people have to do that they have to follow these procedures to be able to do the heroic thing. And there are times that, that induced panic in me because I thought, oh, no, (laughs) like, you cannot see the world as a fairy tale. And yet there's a lot of wisdom there that he's drawing from. And then, of course, we see, I mean, the book is called Our Missing Hearts, because that is one of Margaret's poems or one of her some of her poetry. And so you see how those simple poems, which are about her child and raising a child, have this different resonance for the people who read her work. And I think you see how important it is because the government targets it so much that stories do matter and books do matter. And that when you take away people's ability to understand the world, you force them into making decisions that are informed only by their own experience. They don't have this access to the way other people think and feel. Then you can start to dehumanize them when you take away their stories, which is why her action at the end is so powerful because what she's trying to do is give people back the stories that have been taken from them in a very public way. And you see how resonant that is. I mean, it's the whole, the boy who draws cats and then the drawings are what protects him. The art is what protects them in the end and is what makes a difference. And so I think sometimes we see these actions of removing people's access to books as being, eh, so there are other books out there that they can read. So what if we lose these books? And you just see how dangerous that is because it's not very long until you take all of the books that can be interpreted in any way that is someone else's perspective. Yeah. I mean, I just thought there was so much depth with that exploration of the importance of stories on a personal level and on a societal level 
yeah, I mean, I could ramble on and on about that all day, but I just thought that was so, so brilliant. And the way we get these different stories told in these different ways that then circle back around in the end to be stories of power and stories of giving people back their agency and their identity and their ability to think about who they are and what they believe in. I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that his father is so the the way that libraries are so carefully guarded and I felt like that, part where he has to have the badge and it has to everybody they're watching when that gets scanned and you know all those things that again bird can't see the details of Mm -hmm. but how all those structures which again seem harmless in some ways like of course we want to be safe and we want to know who's where and it's important to protect what we value and like all of those things like there was that line with the teacher where she said, we don't ban anything. Mm-hmm. And kind of this idea of, of course, we're not banning, we're just curating. We're, And so I think that idea of, like the Loyal Americans poster, that we all want to be loyal to our country. We want to protect our kids from horrendous things. Like, that those are all parts that can seem innocuous, or seem good, you know, seem that they're it, we're making wise decisions for our society, but she certainly shows how how quickly it can be, you know, the first domino to knock them all down. And I also love the role that libraries play. Yes, and, I love you know, that. that it, first of all, it's so sad that the libraries are so empty. But then when you see the librarians who the one librarian that helps Bird, who's talking about you know it's our job to find information. And what that ultimately comes to mean. And then you see the network of librarians who are helping to reconnect parents with their children who've been taken, or at least to give them the knowledge of where they are. Uh, I love that part. It was so great. Librarians have got to love this book. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. (laughs) That's exactly, I mean, I think it just challenges, again, we don't realize all the assumptions we make, but it certainly challenges the stereotypes of librarians that Celestine is exploring there of it just takes something that could be a negative portrayal and shows that they are the fighters and they are the resistors and they are the keepers of knowledge, but also they are the ones who understand how important those stories are. And that leads to this unbelievably rebellious, but also so vital act of protecting families. Yeah, yeah. Such a powerful book. All right. Well, let's each share now a quotation. Ashley, what's your quote that you've chosen to share? So this is goes nicely with what Jim was just saying about the librarians. So this is the part where Bird is talking with the librarian who ultimately helps him get some information to get to New York. And she says, you have no idea, do you? How could you? They don't teach you any of this. Too unpatriotic, right? To tell you the horrible things our country has done. The camps at Manzanar or what happens at the border. They probably teach you that most plantation owners were kind to their slaves and that Columbus discovered America, don't they? Because telling you what really happened would be espousing un-American views. And we certainly wouldn't want that. Bird doesn't fully understand any of these things. But what he does understand suddenly and with head-spinning force, is how much he does not know. I'm sorry, he says meekly. And then she goes on to say, how could you know if no one ever teaches you and no one ever talks about it and all of the books about it are gone? And I think that last line especially was just so resonant to me, but I wanted to share the context of it. But I think it's just that idea that, again, when we talk about things like books— No matter where people fall on the issue, most people outside of the book lovers listening to this and us as book lovers, most people feel like it is a pretty trivial topic in comparison to some other things. I think that what we see here is just that she is explaining exactly why that is so powerful. Yeah. Because those are the construction of how we understand the world. And how we understand the world affects how we treat ourselves and each other and how we function as a society. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
I saw it was so impactful, so wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when when Bird walks into the library and sees all the gaps where books used to be. Anyway, okay, yeah. I don't know that what I have about- anything meaningful to say, except yes. <laughs> what about you, Jen? What's your pick? All right. Well, I originally had this short piece of this, but I'm going to read a little bit more. So this is when Margaret is gathering stories from people. And it says, um, one older woman, a Choctaw woman whose granddaughter had been taken, looked at Margaret for a long time with weary eyes, then clicked her teeth. You think this is something new? She shook her head. Margaret listened. She began to learn. There was no new thing under the sun. About the schools where indigenous children were shorn and stripped, renamed, re-educated, and returned home broken and scarred, or never at all. About children born across borders in their parents' arms, only to be caged in warehouses, alone and afraid. About foster children pinballed from home to home, their own families sometimes unable to track their path. Things she'd been able to not know until now. And I think... Again, I mean, I think these are all paralleling each other, but I do think that idea that, you know, Asian Americans have been targeted in the United States before. Of course, we think about the camps and there are so many things that just reappear and we feel as if, oh, no, this is a new horror. And then you realize that they're all just cycling through things that have happened before, which connects beautifully to your quote, Ashley, because the only way we know that is if we learn about history and the things that have come before. And sometimes if we're able to distance ourselves from that history, we feel as if, well, that's done. We'll never do it again. But seeing it as all part of a cycle, when you use people's children against them and you make them censor their own thoughts and feelings because they're afraid of losing their children, which, you know, is ultimately the choice Margaret has to make, which we talked about before, that just allows that system to continue. So I thought that you think this is something new was so simple, but also powerful that we're just people in power rely on the things that have worked for people in power before. Yeah. And I think also like just this idea that we don't have to consider it un-American to be able to examine our past. And I think that is a strong message here, too, that, again, because, I mean, ultimately, the book is hopeful. And I think that there's a lot of idea of that reckoning is part of growth and that we don't have to present a rosy picture of what has been in order to be loyal and in order to make a new future that's a good one for the citizens of the country. So, yeah, I think all of that is really impactful as well. That, you know, those things have happened before, but that doesn't mean that we should not think through those connections. Mm-hmm. And that by thinking through those connections, we can be more critical about what happens in the present. And so, in the book, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, part of it is the idea of, if we can consider the, that pattern, then there's more hope to change from that pattern instead mm-hmm. of continuing to be part of it. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, I will just say I used multiple tins of book darts on this one. So <laughs> there were so many quotations I could have marked. It's uh Beautiful. And anyway. I should say that I did listen to the audiobook. I felt really torn. I've always read her works on print before, but as listeners know, I am um, usually quite conservative in my book purchases, and the wait for the print is a long one. And I had access to the audio thanks to Libro FM and the ALC program. So I listened, and Lucy Liu is the narrator, oh. and she's a phenomenal narrator. So that was really cool. Oh, maybe I'll go back and listen. Yeah, the print. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely read it again, and I want to read the print, but mm-hmm. I did um, I did really enjoy the audio experience. Oh, that's great to know. All right. Well, we each of us now is going to share a pairing, even though we've already planted some ideas there <laughs> in our other discussion. Ashley, what book are you re- recommending for this one? I wanted to share Valeria Lucelli's Lost Children Archive. This is one, I am a little distant from this, so I don't remember all the details as well because I've read it a little while ago, but Jen recommended this to me and I did find it really impactful and I think it definitely lines up with this story. So I'm going to just give a brief overview, but I highly recommend it. It's essentially the story of a family who's going across the U.S. and the mother and father are both 
interested in archival and really wanting to preserve the stories of our world. And there's a lot of exploration of that, like how do we document stories? How do we record them in a way that lasts? And also, how do we capture things like the sounds of our society? What does that look like? And how do we preserve them in an archive? And so I thought all that was really interesting. But there's a couple of different things that are going on. And one of them is the immigration crisis at the border. And so their children are being separated from their families. Both there's the intentional separation. There's also the way that crossing the border, because it is so fraught, because it is so dangerous, that that also leads to separations. And so that is one crisis that is happening that the family is aware of. And then they're also looking to the original intended goal is to go out west to Arizona. They're going to where the Apaches had lived as a society and looking to document that story and to tell the story of that, of the Apache tribe. And so both those things are happening. And I feel like there's a lot of layers in the book. And one of them is just looking at a family and what a family unit is like and how our professional goals and our things that we believe about what matters and how to tell stories. And like, you know, they're both really passionate. The mother and father are both really passionate about their jobs. And yet their lives are kind of splitting because of that. So in some ways, they have all of these very similar passions. And yet, they both feel so strongly about telling these stories and documenting these stories that in some ways that causes a bit of a disintegration of their relationship. And so there's that happening. But then you're also getting this look at the crisis itself, at what that looks like for some of the children in it. And I thought all of that was really impactful. And then I also loved the exploration of how do we tell the stories? How do we find a way to preserve what's true, especially I thought that a lot of what is being explored here is stories that have not been told that have been purposefully and systematically overlooked for the comfort of people so that they don't have to examine these horrific things that have happened and are happening. So I thought all of that was really, you know, really part of an integral part of this story. So again, that's Valeria Lucelli's Lost Children Archive. And I thought it was resonant on a lot of levels and has a lot of parallels to our missing hearts. Yes. That is such a good pick. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I was glad you recommended that one, Jen. It was something that I don't know I would have come across. It did well, like it got a claim, but I also feel like it's not something that I just see all the time as a recommendation. Yeah. That so. one, it was on the um, tournament of books. It was in camp TOB and that was why I read it. I can't remember if it ended up in the final competition, but anyway, that was, yeah, I don't know that I would have found it for that. So another good reason for the tournament books. (laughs) There you go. There you go. What's your pairing, Jen? What'd you decide on? I did waver. There are a lot of good ones, but I chose, this is initially probably going to sound funny, but Veronica Roth's Poster Girl. And for those of you who only know Veronica Roth from her Divergent trilogy, which is a great dystopian YA trilogy especially that first book, which Ashley and I were at a school that did that as a whole school read, which feels like it's yeah, forever ago. Anyway, but Poster Girl is a novel for adults, and it is also dystopian. And there are so many parallels between the world that Roth develops here and the world that Ng develops in Our Missing Hearts. The number one thing that made me think of this parallel is that both focus so much on the removal of children as a way to sort of allow the government to have control over what people are doing. And in Poster Girl, it centers on a person named Sonia Cantor, whose parents were part of a government that one thing they did is they put these cameras in everyone's eyes so that you are essentially always connected to the cloud. And so Sonia was a child when her operation was done. And so basically she can look at something and her mind is linked to the cloud. So she's constantly Googling. She constantly has these inputs from elsewhere. Well, there's a group who comes along and takes down that government. And one of the things they want to do is get rid of rid of these cameras Sonia was literally the poster girl for the first government. 
She was on these posters that were proclaiming how great this world they had was. I mean, it's this complicated thing where there's a right and wrong way to do everything. And if you do the right thing, you get points. You accrue these points that give you special rewards or that get you more status or that allow you to do things. And there are even points that allow you to have more children. Anyway, it's really complicated. That government's taken down. And then, of course, everyone associated with it is basically pushed off into this small section of the city. And they have to live in this small section of the city. That's their punishment. So Sonia's parents were part of that original government. And so when that government was taken down, this is kind of a spoiler, but her parents and her sister died as part of this takedown. So Sonia is the only member of her family left. And she along with everyone else who's living, who was associated with that original government, they're slotted off into this city and basically imprisoned in this community within the city. And it's now been decades since this happened. So Sonia has no connection really with the child she used to be. And yet she is still recognizably, because of all these posters that everybody knew and saw, people still associate her with that original government. There are a lot of levels of political takedowns and governmental takedowns happening here. But what is key is that children are at the heart of the way the government is wielding control over people and trying to get people to do their way. So if if you break the rules, if you speak out against the government, they take your children. And Sonia gets wrapped up in a very complicated way, in investigating this case of a child who was taken from her family. They have been trying to reconnect these families, and yet there are some children that they can't find. And so Sonia gets wrapped up in that. It's a really short book, but it's a surprisingly complex plot. But what I think is really interesting is that focus on children and the way that they can somehow be complicit in something without fully understanding it in the way that children are used against their parents and as a a tool of a government who wants complete control. And just in what it means for everyday people when there's this constant clawing for people to be in power and, and the way that shutting down people's freedom of speech, shutting down their access to information, shutting down people's stories, that those are all ways that people in charge can wield power. I don't think anything there was too spoilery. It is a very complex novel, but there's a lot to uncover as you read through. And I think if you enjoy the questions that Ng is asking in Our Missing Hearts, I think you'll enjoy as well the questions that Roth is asking in Poster Girl. Yeah, wow. I hadn't heard of that one, Jen. And yeah, I would I would definitely read that. I think she was a young writer with the Divergent series. And I absolutely love Divergent, but then went on to not so much love this series, mm-hmm. which is fine. But it does sound like this one is something I would like to I'd love to revisit her work to read that. Something. Yeah, I think this has the power of that first book, but she's definitely grown as a writer. I saw it on a random list. So I, I think it's appearing on some list, but I don't feel like it's been much buzzed about and I really think it's worth reading I think she's addressing a lot of really interesting questions um, over the course of the book both about politics but also that that connection to the cloud and that dependence on the cloud and on sort of gamifying your life is really interesting as well so yeah yeah I just want to touch really quickly on the fact that we didn't talk about Sadie or the Duchess But I felt like those are things that were the secondary parts of our missing hearts were also really impactful. But Mm -hmm. when you were talking about her as the poster child itself, it just made me think about Sadie and her role in the story and how that was something we didn't, we could could talk for a long time about this book. So that was something we didn't explore, but I just wanted to comment on that. I thought that that while a minor part of the book was very impactful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we've got to call this one. So we will end with our bookish hearts. I think I know what Ashley's going to say, but Ashley, how many bookish hearts would you give it? (laughs) definitely five but I appreciated what you said before Jen it is a heavy read Mm -hmm. I think it's one worth doing it has reminded me that sometimes I resist heavy I resist things that make me uncomfortable because I want to not be really grouchy or 
down or feel like I can't get out of bed, but it reminded me that it's not always – once you get through that first part of a feeling with a book, a lot of times it's worth – for me personally mm-hmm. as a reader, it is worth it to get into something that is so impactful and so beautifully told. What about you, yeah. Jen? Well said. Yes. Also five with – yeah, I support all of those things. It's definitely and this one's not, me. it did not feel long. I mean, I don't, I, again, I listened to the audio, but it did not seem long. It is amazing to me how much is packed in there for it to be as short as it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I found it to be really propulsive. So, all right. Well, we are going to close out with our Give Me One segment. And today we are talking about ways to support independent bookstores. Ashley, what do you think? I'm going to say a couple of things. One is, we certainly share about Libro FM a lot, but there are many things I love about them. But one of the things I love is that you do support and you're an independent bookstore of your choice every time you purchase. So I don't do a ton of purchasing in general. I use the library a lot and I don't purchase a lot of books. And I do feel at this point pretty dependent on using Amazon for my e-reader. So I feel like I'm still doing that when I'm purchasing an ebook a lot of times. But I love that about Libro FM. And then the other thing that I've started doing is just making sure that I use independent bookstores for gifts. So like if I'm going to get a gift, that's a really great time for me to support a local bookstore or an independent bookstore because I'm purchasing anyway. And so then that's a nice way for me to both get something I really like for someone, but also feel like I am going to a place that I feel good about when I do that purchase. What about you, Jen? What's one way for you? Yeah, I will just say we are going to have a, an independent bookstore in Harrisonburg, which Woo-hoo. has been much needed for a long time. We're a college, well, there are multiple colleges in our area. We're a college town, and I think it's shocking that we haven't had a really successful independent bookstore. There's some little kind of specialty ones, um, some used bookstores, and there's certainly the Green Valley Book Fair. Anyway, so I am all about parentheses books. I cannot wait for it to open. And with that said, bookshop.org, which again, we also link on all of our episodes, you know, all of our show notes and everything, they support independent bookstores. So basically, it's not quite as direct as Libro FM. You don't choose a bookstore to support, but independent bookstores are part of bookshop.org. And so then all of their proceeds are split among the independent bookstores that are part of them. So that, that's why we've chosen to link those two organizations, those two platforms in our show notes and on our website, we do get a little cut of anything people buy using those links. So we always appreciate it when you use those links to buy the books that we talk about on the podcast. And we feel like that's just a little a little nod to how important they are and how much we love them. Yeah, and that's a great point. Like Jen said, that was something that Uh, Those of you in the book world who also are linking to books, that was a choice that we made is that we did Amazon in the past. And we realized that once Libro and bookshop.org had the affiliate links, like we just that was another choice that we can make Mm -hmm. to say, yes, these are the ones we want to send people to. And so you can see that in our show notes that over time that has changed and that we are proud to support them because we think both those organizations are so outstanding. All right. Well, we will wrap up today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. And we would love to know your thoughts about our missing hearts and yeah, any other pairings maybe that you would recommend. Thanks again for listening. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at unabridged pod or on the web at unabridgedpod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read, or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.